0: How's everybody doing? Better than me, I hope, in some ways. I've got that thing that's been flying around and my voice shows a little bit, but I would not miss this weekend because I am so excited about what we're doing in this series called Can You Relate? Uh, It's a series about all our relationships in life. I mean, can you relate to a holy God who uh, by no means will he let the guilty go unpunished? How do you relate to that God? Because we know we're all a little bit guilty. We spent an entire week on that. And what we've done With every single message that was focused on some relationship that we all have is giving you one word that if that word defines that relationship, it will help you in that relationship the rest of your life. We told you that the word you need to think about when you think about God and how you relate to him is not as some overbearing, holy uh, God that wants to consume you in wrath. That is true. He wants to rescue you, though, from the wrath that is to come. You need to think of God as a good, good father who's demonstrated his love for you and that while we were yet sinners, he came and gave us uh, provision. He sent his son for us. We have a good, good father. He wants it to go well with us. He didn't leave us in the dark and so he gave us the Bible, his word. And if you don't treat the word like a treasure that you mine in to find the words of life, you've got a wrong view of God. This is not a moral rule book. This is the loving effort of a father to tell you who he is, why you're here, where you're going, why the world screwed up, how to make it right, how you can live right. And so this is a blessing. This is a book where a loving dad wants to sit with you and shepherd you that it may go well with you. And then we talked about a life stage that every single one of us are in for a good long while and how you got to view your relationship with singleness. And we use the word gift. If you don't see it as a gift, um, you're going to squander some of the most precious years of your life. And then we talked about our relationships in the most intimate form in marriage. And we said if you don't view your spouse the same way you were to view singleness as a gift, you got all kinds of trouble. I would encourage you to keep listening to all four of those messages and to have uh, the good Father who's given you a treasure and the gift of living faithfully with him as a single person or in marriage uh, so that you can prosper in all that you do. Now today, we're gonna talk about our relationship with children, parenting specifically, but all of us relate to those that are behind us generationally. And um, the word that I could use is gift again. That's what the Bible says, behold, uh, children are a gift from the Lord. But I won't use gift, we'll shake it up after two weeks and I'm out of cash. Uh, and so <laughs> listen to last week's message, but, uh, but what I want to do is, uh, give you another word that you need to think of when you think of kids and to set it up, I want you to watch something that, uh, is a commercial made by a place that kids love to go to. It's the happiest place on earth. As you guys may or may not know for a long time, Disney world Uh, would go to a certain group of players before the big game, before the Super Bowl, which is happening today, and say to them, hey, if you win the Super uh, Super Bowl and are the MVP, when you're running off the field, one of our refs is going to come up to you with a camera. And uh, they're just going to shout at you, hey, Tom Brady, hey, Troy Aikman, you just won the Super Bowl. You were just named the MVP. What are you going to do next? And then here's the reply. Watch this. Star makes I'm going to go to Disney World. So I'm going to Disney World. I'm going to Disney World. We're going, so Disney 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 World. World. We going to Disney World. <laughs> and we're going to Disneyland, too. We're going to Disney World. I'm going to Disneyland, baby. Go to Disneyland. I'm going to Disney World. Dream. I'm going to Disney World. All right, man. Eli Manning, Joe Montana uh, you saw Emmett Smith. You saw them all up there, man. They were all talking about what they're going to do. And here was just the marketing line. And it was brilliant because every young boy, especially dreams of that moment when you lead your team to the biggest win in the biggest game. And you are the, the biggest contributor to that win. And you're, you're, you're at the very top of human accomplishment. What else could you possibly want? And so they say in that moment, and man, you just won the Super Bowl. You're the MVP. What are you going to do next? Like, man, how can you top this? They like, go, I'll tell you how. I can go to Disney World, man. Because that's the happiest place on earth. That's the idea. What a great ploy. Well, here's what I want to tell you something. What you need to understand about your role as a parent specifically is at some point, you need to take your kids to Disney World or Disneyland. And when you're there, And they look at you, and they say, Mom and Dad, this is the happiest place on earth. You need to say, no, it's not. (laughs) The happiest place on earth is when you know your good, good father. And you understand that this book is a treasure." And you treat every day of your life as a single person, like it's a gift to live for him and to enjoy him and to prosper underneath an intimate relationship with him. And one day, if God so aligns it that you're running hard after him on mission for him and you find somebody of the opposite sex who loves him like you do and wants to live for a mission with him and you join with him, what a gift that would be. You know what the happiest place on earth is being deep inside the will of God. That, my friends, is the way you lead children you make sure they know that the happiest place on earth is to walk intimately with the Father who loves them. And I gotta tell you, so many people go to Disney World and the last thing they're thinking about is family devotionals. But there's not a better place on earth to show them that there's a happier way to go through earth. By the way, about the sixth time they've eaten the same meal and stood in line for 45 minutes, it's an easy sell anyway, all right? (laughs) But I'm telling you, I want you to think about, um, you know, what would happen in your life if I told you, hey, you could take your kids to Disney World or Disneyland. All you got to do is intimately seek God in everything that you do. And when you blow it, you're still not disqualified. You just got to acknowledge, hey, that right there, that wasn't me taking advantage of my good, good father and his kindness towards me. And you just correct it, you acknowledge it, you seek forgiveness, you make amends, and you go forward again. If I told you you lived that way for a week and you could take your family to Disney World, you might go, I'm all in, Todd. I'll be attentive to God's word. I'll do everything I can to uh, honor it and treasure it. I'll treat my spouse as a gift. I'll seek my good, good father. And when I don't and I screw up, I'll just acknowledge it. And you tell me in a week, I'll get to go to the happiest place on earth, and I'll tell you, in a week, you'll be in the happiest place on earth. Now, if you don't believe that, you're going to have a really hard time having a truly successful relationship with your kids. Um, Last night, you know, I was here uh, late uh, enjoying D-Town, which is one of my favorite weekends of the year. And um, as we were here and having an amazing time and celebrating this event, well, let me just try and rather explain to you some of the energy and excellence that we put into that event. Let me just show it to you. All right. Watch this highlight film that our media team was up all night working on for you. Check this out. telling you. And one of the things I said to the students when I was here with them last night, is, hey, we're not trying to compete with the world because we don't need to. The world can't compete with the goodness of walking with Jesus. But we do want to let kids know they're worth our very best. We have never, ever thought of children's ministry as something we do in order to kind of contain children so we can do real ministry. We've always thought kids are worth our very best. And we give them our very best. In fact, it reminds me of a story that um, D.L. Moody, who was a great evangelist, uh, told, uh, or was told about him. One time he came home from a, a particular crusade that he was leading, and um, he encountered a friend and said, hey, how was the night's meeting? How did it go? And he said, well, I had two and a half conversions. And uh, his buddy looked at him and said, you mean two adults and one child? And Moody responded and said, no, two children and one adult. That adult has already lived half his life. We had two full conversions right there. Listen, gang, um, there is power in investing in children. If you want to change our culture, you want to change our children. Abraham Lincoln is the one who said that the philosophy of the government, um, well, the philosophy of children in one generation will be the philosophy of the government in the next generation. You are raising your rulers. You are, um, right now, I, I, you know, I'm entering into being a grandparent. I'm about one year into being a grandparent. And I have already seen that for me to be a great grandparent, my time is already up with my sweet little Ramsey. Why do I say that? Because no matter how much I show up to love her and be with her, I'm not going to spend one one hundredth of the time with her as her mama that I raised. You cannot be a great grandparent if you're not a godly parent because that kid is gonna suffer underneath your disciple or thrive under your disciple. My little granddaughter should go up and kiss me and say, I thank you for raising a godly mother who married a godly man that became my godly father. You were a gift to me because you taught her to love a good, good father, to treasure the word and see their marriage and then one another as a gift. That will create security in a child. The words you need to think about when you think about children is disciple. They are learners, and it is our privilege to build into them. It's interesting. Um, so many times the church is hesitant to really, um, um, I think, make claims on children's hearts, right? And, and listen, when it comes to baptism here and kids going through um, uh, a public declaration of their faith, we want to make sure children really understand their faith, but that's not because we don't think children Uh, It's not because we don't think children can give their hearts to something when they're young. By the way, the church, though it's sometimes reluctant to claim the hearts of children, well, Satan isn't. Advertisers aren't reluctant to try and reach the hearts of children. And it is tragic that we don't do everything we can to help kids understand the goodness of Father. We're not talking about um, torturing them and manipulating them emotionally or any other way. I'm talking about modeling for them the goodness of God. Uh, We were in the middle of all the amazing time we had at at D-Town this weekend. And my buddy, David Peniel, who is uh, part of the leadership, came up to me and said, Todd, you make sure you tell those parents tomorrow that this is just an event. This event, as amazing as it was, is gonna be quickly forgotten. And what won't be forgotten is the everyday parent that lives faithfully before them. That will have a hundred times as much of an impact as this event. Too many parents, their strategy is just to farm it on out to the church. That's their plan. What happened this weekend was amazing. We had young adults, um, hundreds of them, that are committed to walking with kids. Some of them pick them up at starting blocks and then they move them to K1 race and then they go to On Your Mark and then they move to Crossroads 45 and then they pick up with them there in Wake and then run with them from 6th grade all the way through Shoreline through 12th grade. They will give their life to these kids. They'll impart sometimes 7, 12 years of their life to the same group of kids that they grow up with. But they are a supplement they are never be a substitute for what God ordained would be the primary place that kids would be loved and encouraged. Mom and dad, you need to know that every now and then, every now and then we'll see a kid that thrives despite the fact that there's indifference in their parents. But w- typically what we see is kids that are halfway in are usually um, kids of halfway in parents. They, um, They they value their kids' sports more than they value their kids' spiritual development. They value their kids' academic success more than they do their attitude about a good, good father. Um, They attend church, but they don't attend to God's business, and those kids watch you. Uh, When I was raising my kids, one of the things that I did often is I would sit them down, and I would give them a little survey. I would ask them, periodically about what they were seeing in my life what they saw in my bride's life and uh how we were doing as parents how we could encourage them a little bit and um, I brought one of those surveys here with me because one of the questions that was on the survey every time I would change the questions some of them were things like hey what's something we do as a family you definitely want to do with yours and I would start this when they were old enough to write okay and um And so they would write down, hey, this is something I love that this family does. I want to do with my family. Uh, What's the one thing I wrote down that you're sure you will not do with your kids? What's your favorite part of being a Wagner? What's your least favorite part of being a Wagner? What's something you wish you did more with your parents? What was your favorite memory with your dad last year? And then um, in every survey, okay, and there was others that I had and they were randomized and and, uh, handed out different times, but in every survey there was always this question, what are the top three things that your mom and dad are most passionate about? And if the answer that came back didn't have as number one, some childhood expression, whether they were four or 14, of an answer that said, dad, you are passionate about me knowing the goodness of God, his love for me, and that there is no happier place on earth than to be intimately acquainted with, reconciled by grace and walking passionately with a present father who cares for me, then I knew that I wasn't doing what I needed to do as a parent. No matter what else I was doing, if that didn't show up, if they said I was more concerned about their grades, more concerned about their athletic development, more concerned about their external behavior, more concerned about some silly hobby or hunting, Uh, or golf, or exercise, or a car, or a college team, I knew that I was failing them as a parent. That I was selling something else as the happiest place on earth. And I was gonna do sometimes irreparable harm to my children. Um, There is no greater gift that you can give your kids. I'll say it now, and I'll say it again a little bit later. When people ask me, hey, Todd, what's the number one thing that I can do in order to bless my children? And the answer is, passionately pursue Jesus Christ in your own personal life. And if you wanna know what the second one is, I would tell you it's passionately pursue your spouse. By the way, you can't do number two well if you don't do number one well. If you wanna live a godly heritage, if you wanna be a disciple maker, because this is discipleship. It's, it's, it's so confusing sometimes to think about what discipleship is, but here, here's what I'm gonna tell you um, to disciple somebody. Have in your heart what's on the heart of God while you spend time with people you love. Folks, you're not giving just a message to, but you're imparting your very lives as well, as Paul wrote he did to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse eight. You became very dear to us, and we imparted you not only the gospel of God, but our very lives as well. You cannot be an effective disciple maker if you are not yourself a disciple. A student will not be greater than his teacher. Listen, every now and then we see kids who thrive despite the fact that there are parents who are um, largely indifferent, but man, halfway kids are typically in a direct relationship and are raised by halfway parents. You give me two fully devoted followers of Christ for parents, and I like that kid's chances. And I'm not talking about parents who say they love Jesus. I'm not talking about parents who go to church. Don't. Try and get your kids excited about Wake, about Shoreline, about On Your Mark. Don't try and get your kids excited to go to church. You get your kids excited to know the goodness and kindness of Jesus Christ. And you show them and model for them what it's like to be part of a family that is the church. And you invite them into that community. And you show them that here are others that will encourage them in the most important relationship in human life. Um, I'll say it again. You give me a kid with two fully devoted parents and I like their chances. You are their best hope. It's not something you can substitute out. By the grace of God, you're in a place like this where there are supplements all around you. But you wanna be an individual that is on point and ready. Somebody who has a plan. Um, Socrates said this, he said, could I climb to the highest place in Athens? I would lift up my voice and proclaim, fellow citizens, why do you turn and scrape every stone to gather wealth? And yet you take so little care of the children to whom you must one day relinquish it all. Spurgeon said it this way, it was a great communique. He said, don't house the chaff and burn the grain. Don't boil the husk and discard the corn. You make sure you invest in the most important thing. And there is nothing more important than children. They are our hope for the future. We are raising our rulers. If we want to change our culture, we change our children. Investing in them is investing in the future. Um, There is no better way to affect a life than to invite them into your home. Share constant meals with them. Let them watch you, seek God, confess your sins, celebrate his blessing. Um, I I will tell you that when you see, and do it for 18 years, that's what I've been in the middle of. I've been in the middle of with six different kids, an 18 year discipleship program. And I have been doing everything I can, just model for them one thing, there's a good, good father. And when you walk with him, It is the happiest. That's the word blessed in scripture. It is the happiest place to be. Life isn't perfect. You sometimes get cancer. There's sometimes tragedies that befall you. Uh, Your body doesn't develop at the rate that you want. You may not look in a mirror and see what you want to see, but you are fearfully and wonderfully made. God makes no mistakes. You are a gift. Your life is a gift. And God intends to bless you. Walk with him. Um, I am... uh, Uh, you know, um, constantly, uh, you know, reminded of the seriousness with which Jesus himself addressed this. And it's amazing to me how, um, our society doesn't view children the way that God wants us to. Right. Uh, we have all kinds of variant views of children and you'll hear different things. You'll hear stuff like, well, kids are a burden, Todd. Right. And it shouldn't surprise us, right, that our culture values what God says is futile and it wants to do away with what God says is a blessing. It shouldn't surprise me when the world thinks that way, but what's shocking to me is how much I hear that mindset trafficked inside communities even like this. When we think that children are anything but a gift, when we see them as a burden, an interruption to a career path, a distraction from uh, the life that we wanted, we have bought a lie. Children are not a burden. I love um, you know, Mark Twain's perspective on this, kind of as representative of the world. Uh, he says this, he says, listen, man, here's the deal. When your kid, uh, you know, when you have a kid, enjoy them. When they turn 13, put them in a barrel, all right? Nail the lid on top and feed them through the knot hole. And then he said, when they turn 16, plug the knot hole, all right? <laughs> Now, it doesn't surprise me that that's what Mark Twain said. Okay, because Mark Twain, think about who he was. He was one of the greatest American humorists ever. Um, He would ride around uh, the world in trains, and he would travel, and he would uh, increase his fame and his wealth. And he had a boy at home and a wife that was uh, basically widowed. And that kid, when Mark Twain showed back up and tried to speak into that kid's life, that 13-year-old was like, hey, Dad, you know, where you been, man? You've been around my whole life. What do you mean you want to speak into my life right now? A 13-year-old has learned to be his own man, and he doesn't want to hear from you about what matters and what's right because you haven't been around to show him that. And when you get that kind of kid who's trying to uh, figure it out and doesn't want you to figure into that process, you're going to want to put him in a barrel. But when you have a plan and you have a presence in their life, teenage years are a blessing. There was a time at the Wagner household had uh, five teenagers at once, all right? We had five kids in our first um, seven years of marriage. And, um, and all those kids eventually, and you know, a lot of people were like, oh my gosh, you know? that was crazy. And I can remember, people were like, man, you just gotta survive. Uh, it's another mindset that we have. We just need to survive the child rearing years. No, you don't. You need to dive in during those child rearing years. I said no to a lot of opportunities to travel and to go other places because I wanted to be present in the lives of those kids. I wanted to have a relationship with them. Too many people and too many guys, Mark Twain's, think that the way that kids spell love is S-T-U-F-F. It makes us feel good when we can buy them stuff, take them places like Disney World. But the way kids spell love is T-I-M-E. There are all kinds of kids that have been taken to Disney World that can be numb from the pain of their distant relationship with their parents while they're distracted by all that uh, Mickey offers them. But when they go back home to an absent daddy or a controlling mama who doesn't know how to make that home the happiest place on earth, Disneyland is a bad trade. You want to dive in when they're young. You don't want to survive the child rearing years. You want to go, this is why. This is when I'm going to build a relationship so that these kids grow old and they know that I love them and I've got their best interests in mind. And they start to have more freedom and more opportunities. Their very first thought is, let me go back to that mom and that dad that have been present. And haven't been out there trying to appease me with stuff. Or at least they say it's for me. I know it's not but who have shown me that I'm the most important thing in their life and I bet they've got something to say about the choices that I'm making now that'll help me thrive now even though I've seen them be present and love me through those earlier years. Our teenage years were a blessing. We loved having five teenagers in our house. Uh, wasn't perfect, all right, because they're just like me. They're sinners who every now and then don't do what a good, good father wants us to do. Don't treasure God's word. We treasure our own way. We don't treat each other as a gift, but we would come to our senses, we'd seek forgiveness, we would reconcile, we'd make amends, we'd grab hands, we'd remind ourselves of the goodness of God in his way, and we'd make it the happiest place on earth again. We'd do it continually. Every time we shared a meal, we would stop. Before we commune together by breaking bread and, uh, and, and drinking the drink, we would stop and go, hey man, this, this is supposed to remind us of what love looks like, that God died for us. His body was broken for us. His blood was shed for us. And so we're not supposed to eat and drink in an unworthy manner. If this is reminding us of the love of God, how are we doing at modeling that love for one another? And there were many Wagner meals where the food grew cold because we had to say, hey, I'm not doing well with you right now. And kids would sometimes see the tension between their mother and I that would happen over the course of a day And we would just say right there, hey, look, we just gotta ask your forgiveness. We've not been modeling for you what love looks like between a mother and a father. I've asked your mom's forgiveness for this. You heard the way I spoke back to her. You saw the way I handled that situation. And I've asked your mom's forgiveness and you saw it, I'm asking yours. And we're at peace and we've forgiven each other. And we welcome you to the blessing that is our desire to honor and treat each other as a gift. And all we're trying to do is reflect the love of a God who reconciled us to him even though he had no part in the fall. And your mom and I both just acknowledged we got a little bit of the problem, each of us our own in this relationship. You don't think that brought security to those kids? That they saw us be passionate about our love for each other and making sure that at home was an inviolable commitment to oneness? Well, you can be sure it did. Uh, there was a um, great quote by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, you guys know who, did a lot to stand up against the, the horrors of fascism in Nazi Germany, who said the test of a morality of a society is what it does for its children. And that's true. And I just want to insert this right here because um, our society is falling apart. In fact, yesterday... Um, I picked up the Dallas Morning News, which begs the question, who picks up the newspaper anymore? Okay. But uh, I was running through a corner bakery and they had papers laying around and I just couldn't miss the headline. This is yesterday's headline, the Dallas Morning News. It says, U.S. child abuse deaths shoot up. And it said primarily because of the um, significant increase in two states. And they're both, uh, I don't know if they're red or blue states, but they're conservative states, Indiana and Texas. They talk about the the, the brokenness of the child protective services um, in both of those states. And when you talk to our friends in the CPS here in, in Dallas, they will tell you one of the problems is is that we don't have the right number of good families to place these children into. And you know that we have said as a church, our goal is to have more families ready to take foster kids whose homes are no longer fit for them to thrive in and to be blessed in than there are kids um, waiting. Right now, there's more kids waiting for homes than there are homes. We want more homes waiting for those kids than there are kids in that system. Right now, a lot of the kids in Dallas County are shipped out to other counties away from their home. Our goal is to not just wanna take those kids. Our goal is to be a a disciple-making church that helps people understand the grace of God that went to work in our life so that when CPS takes kids from an abusive home, they would say to that mom and dad as they... as they. uh, Explain to them why they've lost plenty of rights. If you wanna get your kids back, we can't make you do this, but I'm just gonna tell you something. You need to go to Watermark Community Church because they will teach you how to find forgiveness and healing and regeneration and get your life back in order in such a way that we would be pleased to put the kids back in your home. That church doesn't wanna provide just families for your kids while this family is unhealthy. That, kid wants to make, that church wants to make you healthy. That's our goal. We wanna be a church that is available to take away the excuse um, that someone can't change, and if people won't change, that those kids can't be placed in loving environments. And so, man, I'm encouraging you to jump in on that train. If you're interested in that, man, take that little perforated section. Whatever campus you're on, and just say, man, tell me more about how I can get involved in the foster care or adoptive services business. But meanwhile, let's make sure that our homes are already a place where kids can thrive. Um, there's a, a, a gal I sometimes read who's just a cultural commentator today in our country. And she wrote this, and I thought it's really good because one of the relationships I'm gonna talk about here in a couple of weeks is our relationship with people of different races. Can you relate to them? She wrote this, she said, slavery was an institutionalized act of racism. Abortion today is institutionalized murder. I find it ironic that that we continue to hear about the guilt of America being its racist past, yet there is little said about the guilt of America for its murderous present. The supremacy of death and the dehumanization of our children are inherent in these laws, similar to the supremacy of whites and the dehumanizations of blacks in our darkened history. Boy, that is so true. That is so true. Gang, There has been institutionalized racism in this country that we have got to own and deal with. And I am so proud of the way that's happening here and in many people who know that uh, we're all God's children. And I'm glad we're tackling that as we should. Meanwhile, there is institutionalized murder that is continually celebrated in this country. And 40% of the abortions that happen in this country happen in households of people who say they attend evangelical churches. Somebody explain that to me. The answer is we have half-in parents, and so we have over a million kids who don't even make it into this world one time. Listen, if you made that abortion decision, we have a ministry here called Someone Cares. We have a ministry here for women. We have a ministry called Forgotten Fathers. We love you. We wanna help you deal with that tragic mistake, find the forgiveness and healing that we've all found, and help you start to value God's perspective on life the way he does. But folks, not only does we care about them in the womb, but we want to care about them all the way to the dorm room. And we want to make our community a place where children thrive. We don't survive the child-rearing years. We are fully present and we are all in. You can tell a lot about a culture by the way it treats its children. Now, like I said, um, Jesus was not silent on this issue. He, uh, He spoke about it in Mark chapter 10. In verse 13, Jesus was, uh, was uh, out and um, it, he was in a spot where they were bringing children to him so that he might touch them. But the disciples rebuked him. Now think about that. These are guys that are hanging around Jesus and they had this mindset that kids, okay, that kids shouldn't be brought to Jesus. By the way, just so you know, uh, folks who study such things will tell you that 95% of individuals who make a decision to follow Christ, do so before the age of 25. Catch that. 95% of individuals who, um, who abide uh, with Christ made some decision to honor him and to ask him to be their savior. Look, you might say, well, kids can't fully understand what they're doing. Hey, can adults fully understand the ramifications of the imputation of the righteousness of Jesus Christ in their life? It's beyond all of us. But at some point before they were 25, if those kids, uh, don't make a decision. Uh, it becomes minuscule the moment of converts since them. I love the way we're seeing adult lives change here in our community because we're going after them. But let us not ever do it, the neglect of the children that God gave us. Let me just tell you something. Satan isn't waiting until your kids grow up to try and get their heart. TV isn't trying to wait till your kids grow up to get their heart and neither should you. You don't sell them a bill of goods. You show them the blessed way. You want to say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. You want to say the things you have learned and received and seen in me. Practice these things and the peace of God will be with you. Uh, It is not shocking to me that there's an epidemic of anxiety and despair and depression in our youth in America today. Why? Because we have an epidemic of parents who don't walk with God. And that's why you see so many kids. And what do we do when our kids struggle? We don't run to Jesus. We run to the doc. A prescription is written. And we just try and stabilize them. And we numb them. Rather than deal with the reality of the dysfunction of the world that they live in and give them the hope of God, we appease ourselves. That it's not our problem. That there's something wrong with their wiring. I think we better make sure there's nothing wrong with the home first. This gang is serious business. Jesus says, don't you hinder the children from coming to me. This is what he said. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. And he said, permit the children to come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. And he took them in his arms began blessing them and laying his hands on them. I could talk about this all day long, but I just want to say one thing. One way to hinder a child is to not give them something to aspire to, or be attracted to. You are hindering a child if you, the primary person who can model for them what the happiest way of life is on earth, is to be indifferent to that relationship, you are hindering that child. And it happens way too often right here. And so we are committed to helping you have a mindset of, listen, man, I'll never be a good parent if I don't run hard after Jesus. I'll never be a good parent if I don't love my spouse like they're a gift. And I want my kids to know I could take them to Disneyland and that wouldn't be the happiest place on earth if we don't abide with our king. Um, One of my favorite American poets is a guy named Edward Guest. And uh, he wrote a poem uh, called I'd Rather See a Sermon. I used to have it memorized, It, it goes like this. It says, I'd rather see a sermon than hear one any day, I'd rather one should walk with me than merely show the way, uh, than tell the way, rather. The eye's a better pupil and more willing than the ear find counsel is confusing, but example is always clear. And the best of all the preachers are the men who live their creeds, for to see good put in action is what everybody needs. I can soon learn how to do it if you will let me see it done. I can watch your hand in action, but your tongue too fast may run and the lectures you deliver may be wise and very true, but I'd rather get my lesson by observing what you do. Hey, that is the model of scripture, is to be with people you love, what you have in your heart, what's on the heart of God. That's how you make disciples. Um, That's why the Spanish proverb is very true, which says that an ounce of mother is worth a ton of priest. That's really good, isn't it? It's a fact. Uh, and so we want to be individuals that make sure that uh, we give them all that we need. Gang, when you are uh, out there and your kids say to you, uh, Dad, what's the happiest place on earth? You ought to just spill out Proverbs 3. I mean, that's what ought to happen, right? Um, Proverbs 3. Uh, well, son, you want to know what the happiest place on earth is? Don't forget my teaching. Let your heart keep my commandments because my commandments are God's commandments. For the length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Don't let kindness and truth leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. For then you will find favor with both God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and you will make your path straight Don't be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. Turn away from evil. It will be healing to your body and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all your produce. So your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. My son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his reproof. For whom the Lord loves, he reproves. Even as I, a father, correct the son in whom I delight. How blessed is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding for her profit." is better than the profit of silver and her gain far better than fine gold. She is more precious than jewels and nothing you desire compares with her. Long life is in her right hand and in her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are pleasant ways and all her paths are peace. This is what you should say when your kids go, Dad, where can I find life? You should just spill this out. The Lord by wisdom founded the earth, son. By understanding, he established the heaven's daughter. By his knowledge, the deeps were broken up and the skies drip with dew. My son, let them not vanish from your sight. Keep sound wisdom and discretion so there'll be life to your soul and adornment to your neck. Then you will walk in your way securely. Your foot will not stumble. When you lie down, you will not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. It won't be ruled by anxiety and despair and depression. Thoughts of suicide and cutting. Don't be afraid of sudden fear, nor of the onslaught of the wicked when it comes, for the Lord will be your confidence to keep your foot from being caught. Now, gang, I want to insert right here that while it is absolutely true that you are your children's best hope, we all probably take too much blame for the choices our kids make, and we take too much credit when it goes well. Some of the godliest parents I know at Watermark have a prodigal child. And so I'm not saying you can control every choice your child made. I mean, Adam and Eve had a perfect father and it wasn't his fault. But let's make sure, okay? Let's make sure you are on point and doing everything you can to know that you are as present as you can be with a plan, not being a buddy, okay? But being a parent for the glory of God while you passionately pursue Christ before your kid. Listen to them. Ask them what it is in your life that is exasperating them, that's taking the spirit from them. What do you see in me that makes you think the God that I know is not a God worth serving? That's what it says in Scripture. Raise up your children in the fear of the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate. Word is, I like words, right? Exasperate, ex, to take from, aspire, okay, to give breath to. Don't take the spirit from your child, Dad. By saying, don't do what I do, do what I say. Don't tell your kids that there's life somewhere and run somewhere else. This, by the way, is how communism was born. You guys know that? Karl Marx was a Jewish boy being raised in Germany by a father he revered and honored and loved. His dad taught him about Judaism and about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then they moved to another town in Germany. They got to that other town in Germany. It was a Lutheran town that wasn't... um, informed by the scriptures in the way that it should be, been, so it didn't have a view towards Judaism that, that, um, that, that was uh, anything biblical. And uh, Karl Marx's father came home one day and told his family they were no longer Jewish, they were Lutheran. Not because they had run into God-fearing Lutherans, who helped this Jew see that the fulfillment of all the law and the prophets was this Jewish Messiah named Jesus. And that he was the that that they didn't need to stop being Jewish. That in fact, the most Jewish thing they could do is to embrace the God that Martin Luther knew about. No, that's not why uh, the senior Marx came home and said, we're now Lutheran. He came home and he said, my business is not gonna thrive here unless I'm a Lutheran. I can't tell these people a Jew. They won't shop where I, I offer goods. And so we're now Lutheran. And young Karl Marx lost all respect for his father. He left Germany, he went to London, he studied the Museum of Science and Natural History. He sat down there and he wrote a treatise called Das Kapital where he said religion is the opiate of a masses. It, it can be explained purely in economic terms. And at one point, 73% of the earth was under this man's godless worldview. And it all started because he saw a daddy that honored riches more than really understanding the scriptures. I guarantee if that Jewish father came home and said, let me just tell you something, we're going to do the most Jewish thing we can do. We're going to believe in Jesus. I've just pumped into somebody who showed me that Jesus is the fulfillment of all the promises that I've told you. And the reason we love our God is because he was going to give us deliver. deliverer. He has given us the deliverer. All this time, I thought that the deliverer was going to be somebody that took us away from the oppression that was being dispersed from our homeland. No, he came and delivered us from the oppression that is sin and God will restore us one day to all that he said. But for now, let us rejoice. Hope has come you would have had a completely different story with Karl Marx. (sighs) I talked to so many people who um, say that the reason they don't have more kids is because of financial reasons. When I got married, I was making about $11,000 a year before taxes. And um, two years later, we had our first kid. In fact, I can remember going to ask uh, my wife's parents, if I could have um, their hand in marriage. And the job that I was in, making about 11, 12 grand a year, I was leaving. And so, you know, the guy said, Well, Todd, how are you going to provide for your daughter? I just said, Well, I'm going to continue to work hard and I'm confident that God will provide. It reminds me of the joke of a guy who went to a, uh, ask for hands. This didn't happen to me, but he could have. You know, a guy wants to ask this, um, this, this guy if he could have his daughter's hands in marriage. And he walks in the room. And the guy said, Well, how are you going to provide for my daughter? He goes, I don't know, man. I just trust trusting that God's going to provide. He walks out of the room and the guy, uh, meets his wife and his wife said, well, how'd it go? He goes, well, I got some good news and some bad news. He goes, the bad news is the kid doesn't know how to work for a living. And the good news is he thinks I'm God. <laughs> no, let me just tell you something. My wife and I did never set out to have, you know, a large family. We both knew we love God and we love kids. We knew that God said children are a gift from the Lord. And we both loved the privilege of giving birth to and shape to eternal humanity made in the image of God. And I said to the Lord early on, Lord, if you'll help me provide for them and feed them, I'll abide with you so I can love them. And I'll tell them the goodness of who you are and show them that your word is a treasure and that life is a gift to live for eternity and enjoy it for you why there's brokenness, why there's trouble, maybe why there's even um, someone might be born with birth defects, I don't know, but I know that they're fearfully and wonderfully made and there's gonna be a day when you're gonna make it all right and you help me provide for those kids and I'm all in. I can remember where I was reading in my early 20s in my Bible in Psalm 37, I came across verses 25 and 26. It says this, I once was young and now I'm old and never have I seen the righteous forsaken or their descendants beg for bread. All day long, he is gracious and lends and his children are a blessing. I shut my Bible. And I just said, okay, Lord, I'm not going to run after this career path that would give me riches and gold where I can you know, give a lot of money away. I'm going to give myself to fully serving you in every way that would bring you joy and bring me joy. Because I knew I loved sharing Christ with people. I just wasn't sure I wanted to do it making 11 grand a year. But I said, you know what? I don't care about the 11 grand, Lord. You say that if I seek you, I can be gracious and lend. And even more, my children will be a blessing. And I'm going to tell you, God has more than taking care of that. I tell young men all the time, this whole idea of birth control that's out there when I meet with young men and I hear so many guys say, man, we're just not ready to start a family, man. We're trying to, you know, um, build up a little income. I said, man, if you wait till you have enough money to educate your kids, you'll never have enough money to have a child. God doesn't want to say that you're going to be successful. If you send your kids to an Ivy league school or have them get some private coaching so they can get a D1 scholarship. No, you're gonna be a success if you radically pursue Christ. And I would tell you, you start to have as much of God's blessing in your life as quickly as you can today. And if you're righteous, God will help you provide for them. Doesn't mean you'll live in a certain area in a certain kind of house or take certain vacations, but the happiest place on earth is in a home where mama and daddy get it. You start having kids. I couldn't encourage you more to listen to my real truth real quick on how many kids should a Christian family have. Please listen to my real truth real quick on the one that talks about, should a Christian use birth control? All right. I'm going to tell you this real quickly. Um, If you think of kids as anything but a gift, you're not thinking biblically and you have been sold a lie. This amazing D-Town weekend, all six of my kids were involved in some way All right, I take that back, really five were. One was home raising my granddaughter, all right? Uh, Three of them were here serving. They've grown up here and they've seen the power and the love of the supplement that is the Watermark Student Ministry, and they were here serving. Two were here still actively participating. And it's a blessing to see that. The scripture says this, guys, Psalm 127. Uh, Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. I could talk a a lot, but I'll give you one application for that. What I think is about to happen in Psalm 127 is God's gonna show you how not to live a life of vanity. You can build a great house with many accomplishments and have all of Athens, and your life is vain. But you want your life to matter and be enduring, this psalm takes you here. Behold, children are a gift from the Lord. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. And I would encourage you, I would encourage you to take care of those kids. Take those little arrows, those disciples, and aim them well. A couple of quick things, and I land it. Are you ready? Number one, uh, an arrow is going to go where you aim it. And so you've gotta have a plan. If I could give you just four simple things to remember in this little message, it's just simply that, have a plan. If most of us um, treated the way we raise our kids, the way we um, treat our jobs with so little thought and planning and effort, we'd be fired in a week. And you've got to have a plan. Number two, have a presence. You cannot be a great mom or dad if you are not present with your kids. Thirdly, be a parent. Don't be their best friend. Be the best parent. Kids want to know that there's some authority in their life that is going to stand up against um, even the, the love of the things that their own flesh is drawn to. Don't worry about the fact that they say, nobody else's parents is gonna tell them they can't do that. You tell them you're you're not anybody else's parents. You tell them, hey, listen, I may be the only parent in this community. I may look like an alien parent to you because that's exactly what you are if you raise your kids with a biblical mindset. You're like an alien and a stranger in the land. That's exactly what it says in 1 Peter. Have a plan, have a presence, be a parent, and be a passionate follower of Christ. Kids will go where you aim it. To aim something, you gotta practice it and you gotta keep working with it to get it to go the right way. Not every time you're gonna hit the mark, but you keep gently returning, gently returning, gently returning. Kids go where you aim it. Not only that, but arrows can be a source of great blessing or they can be a source of great destruction. When you just lay your kids around uh, and you don't care for them, that's like having a loaded gun in your house. If you don't use it well, somebody else is gonna pick it up and it's gonna become a source of destruction. There is no pain like the pain of a godless child. You guys know Squeaky Frome? How many of y'all know the name Squeaky Frome? You're probably my age if you do or older, not very many of you. Squeaky Frome was a follower of Charles Manson. Uh, She was distinguished as a follower because she tried to kill, at that time, um, the the, the sitting president who was President Ford. Uh, She had a failed assassination attempt against him. When Squeaky Frome, who came from a prosperous suburb, was questioned why she ever became a follower of Charles Manson, she said, because when I was a young girl, my daddy abandoned me for greater things. And I swore the very first man that I met who loved me, I would give my heart to him. Charles Manson, when he was put on the stand and he was asked how he got those kids to follow him, he goes, are you kidding me? They were your kids, you turned them out. And I took them in. When you forget your children when you think there's something more important in your life than investing in your kids, you've got a loaded gun laying around that somebody who doesn't have their best interest in mind is gonna pick up and it's gonna become a source of destruction and sadness in your life and others. This, by the way, is why God warned us the way that he did in Hosea chapter four. Hosea chapter four, I'll read you this verse. It says, my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. They think kids are a burden. They think that they got to just survive the child parenting years. He says, because you've rejected my knowledge, I will also reject you from being my priest. Since you've forgotten the law of your God, I will also forget your children. You want to know why our country's struggling? Because we're being led right now by a bunch of children that weren't discipled. We were led by a a bunch of children that weren't taught how to be rulers with selflessness, that fulfilling their own fantasies. It's amazing to me that we've gotten so broken in our country that when a kid thinks that there's something other than the biological sex they're assigned, that we help them move further into mental illness. It is amazing to me. And it's just evidence that we have lost all knowledge of the goodness of God. I'm going to read this last story because it's one of my favorites. And um, I can hardly read it. Every time I read it, it almost chokes me up. But it's a good, simple story. And then we're done. It's called What My Father Wore. What my father wore embarrassed me as a young man. I wanted him to dress like a doctor or lawyer, but on those muggy mornings when he rose before dawn to fry eggs, my mother and me, he always dressed like my father. We lived in South Texas, and my father wore tattered jeans with the imprint of his pocket knife on the seat. He liked shirts, snapped more than those that buttoned, and kept his pencils, cigars, glasses, wrenches, and screwdrivers in his breast pocket. My father's boots were government-issued with steel toes that made them difficult to pull off his feet, which I sometimes did when he returned from repairing air conditioners. His job that also shamed me. But as a child, I crept into his closet and modeled his wardrobe in front of the mirror, My imagination transformed his shirts into the robes of kings and his belts into soldiers' holsters. I slept in his undershirts and relied on the scent of his collar to calm my fear of the dark. Within a few years, though, I started wishing my father would trade his denim for khaki and retire his boots for loafers. I stopped sleeping in his clothes and eventually began dreaming of another father. I blamed the way he dressed for my social failures. When boys bullied me, I thought they'd see my father wearing his cowboy hat but no shirt while walking our dog. I felt that girls snickered at me because they'd glimpsed him mowing in the grass and cut and black boots. The girls' families paid other men to do that. And I believe they were better dressed than my dad when they did it to landscape their lawns while their fathers yachted in the bay wearing lemon yellow sweaters and expensive sandals. My father only bought two suits in his life. He preferred clothes that allowed him the freedom to shimmy under cars and squeeze behind broken Maytags where he was most content. But the day before my parents' 20th anniversary, he and I went to Sears and he tried on suits all afternoon. With each one, he stepped in the mirror, smiled and nodded, and then asked about the price and reached for another. He probably tried 10 suits before we drove to a discount store and bought one without so much as approaching a fitting room. That night, my mother said she'd never seen a more handsome man. Later, he donned the same suit for my eighth eighth grade awards banquet and I wished he'd stayed home. After the ceremony, I'd been voted Mr. Citizenship of all things. He lauded my award, my character, while changing into a faded red sweatsuit. He was stepping into the garage to wash a load of laundry when I asked what even at that age, 14, struck me as cruel and wrong. Why, I asked, don't you dress nice like my friend's fathers? He held me with his sad, shocked eyes and searched for an answer. Then before he disappeared into the garage and closed the door between us, my father said, son, I like my clothes. An hour later, my mother stormed in my room, slapped me hard across the face and called me an ungrateful little twerp, a phrase that echoed in my head until they resumed speaking to me. In time, they forgave me. And as I matured, I realized that girls avoided me not because of my father, but because of his son. I realized that my mother had slapped me because my father could not. And it soon became clear that what he had really said that night was, there are things more important than clothes, huh? He said he couldn't spend a nickel on himself because there were things that he wanted from me. That night, without another word, my father said, you're my son, and I sacrificed so that you can have things that are better than mine. From my high school graduation, my father arrived in a suit he and my mother had purchased earlier that day. Somehow he seemed taller, more handsome, and imposing, and when he passed the other fathers, they stepped out of his way. It wasn't the suit, of course, but the man. The doctors and the lawyers recognized the confidence in his swagger, the pride in his eyes, and when they approached him, they did so with courtesy and respect. After we returned home, my father replaced the suit in the flimsy Sears garment bag, and I didn't see it again until his funeral. I don't know what he was wearing when he died, but he was working, so he was in clothes he liked, and that comforts me. My mother thought of burying him in a suit from Sears, but I convinced her otherwise and soon delivered a pair of old jeans, a flannel shirt, and his boots to the funeral home. On the morning of the services, I used his pocket knife to carve another hole in his belt so it wouldn't droop around my waist. Then I took the suit from Sears out of his closet and changed into it. Eventually, I mustered the courage to study myself in the mirror where, with the exception of the suit, I appeared small and insignificant. Again, as in childhood, the clothes draped over my scrawny frame. My father's scent wafted up up, and caressed my face and It failed to console me this time. I was uncertain, not about my father's stature. I'd stopped being an ungrateful twerp years before. No, I was uncertain about myself and my own stature. And I stood there for some time, facing myself in my father's mirror, weeping, and trying to imagine, as I will for the rest of my life, if I could ever grow into my dad's clothes. Guys, I love the statement that fathers are a mirror that young men use to dress themselves. There's a proverb that says, um, raise up a child in the way he should go. Dress him right. And when he is old, he will put those clothes back on. What are your father's clothes? Are you putting them on? Father, I pray that we would disciple our children. I pray we take seriously the call to see children as a gift that we would quit hiding behind, wouldn't be able to provide for them. What we really want to do is seek more comfort for ourselves. I pray we'd have kids. I pray we'd be present with those kids. I pray we'd have a plan for those kids. I pray we wouldn't have kids so we could have friends, that we would shepherd them and that we would be passionate followers of Christ, filled with grace and truth, clothed in humility and honor and righteousness as we abide with you. And that it would comfort our kids. And that we would make our homes the happiest place on earth because we walk with you. We love you. I pray we'd follow you in Jesus' name. Amen.